Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is going to be good because we spent a couple of months trying to get this together and finally got him here. Tanner Alif is joining us. He does healthcare research for Cicero Institute. He's going to tell us more about that in a little bit. Tanner, how are you? Great to finally have you on the program, my friend. It's doing great. Doing great. We just came off of Texas freeze, so out of power for about four days. So that was fun. But now I'm happy in the clam getting ready to work in session. See, a true story. I'm a mountain kid. So, I'm, you know, January, you didn't go to school. We just had snow. I grew up in the mountains. Uh, my first duty station in the military was Little Rock. And the first weekend I was there, they had an ice storm. I'd never been to a, through a southern ice storm before. So I showed up to work and everybody looks at me like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the new guy. They're like, how did you get here? I was like, I drove. And they're like, we're in shelter in place for the ice storm. I'm like, for this? But yeah, <laughs> people down south don't like ice storms. That's a fact. Glad everything's good down there. <laughs> Let's talk a little healthcare. This is this is what you do. We were talking about it before, but I want you to explain to me like I'm five because I have trouble with this stuff. Mm-hmm. We've turned healthcare costs from a really serious problem and a serious policy issue and a government issue into a buzzword that means absolutely nothing. Healthcare costs is a really big deal. Healthcare costs, the term doesn't mean anything. Let's break that down a little bit, because what the real problems here are, we don't understand what we're dealing with unless you, well, are you talking about insurance costs? Are you talking about what the hospital needs to cover their expenses? Are you talking about what the doctors charge the hospital in those agreements? Are you talking about what the state regulators say you can and cannot do? There is so much in that one term. And until you undo that ball of wax, all the rest of this, you're really just kind of chasing shadows, aren't you? No, pretty much. It's kind of sad. I talked to a few uh, hospital executives before on my talking like CFO level individuals. And, uh, you know, when I go to ask them like, so like, what's like just brass tacks, like how much does it take to actually perform like an ACL reconstruction? If you're playing pick up basketball and you tear it, you know, and they just truly don't have any gauge or depth half the time or really any reference. Like very few hospitals are actually really good at accounting. And so when we talk about costs, it's not like, you know, when we're like talking about groceries or mechanics or ordering parts, right? We're able to factor in like the raw materials, the manufacturing, the distribution, everything, and get to like a whole number. Healthcare, that's not the case whatsoever, right? And then like the fact when you factor in like the fact that we are like 
patients, right? The primary consumers of healthcare aren't paying for like the actual goods and services are not the primary payers of those goods and services. You don't, you're like also factoring those third parties and we have no really reference anymore when we're talking about costs. Like it's uh, it's pretty much the point where if you ever heard the term like a charge master list, right? That's like made a price and there's a difference between cost and price. But to me at this point, uh, unlike other industries, cost is just as ambiguous as price now. And like, cause usually with price, you make a difference because you get to like dictate what it is, what your product, what your service is going to cost your patrons. But there's just uh, the calculation. You'd, you'd be horrified if you sat down and talked with some folks. Yeah. Here's the part of this that folks here, the business end of this is really hard for folks to get a hold of. They see things like if you live rurally, you see rural hospitals shutting down or consolidating or going to a lot of them are going to a regional system where you'll have a hub, you know, almost a hub and spoke system of healthcare, which we can debate how healthy that is. But that's the business model right now. If you're in an urban environment, it's the same way. You know, the big hospitals are getting bigger and the small ones are kind of disappearing. Clinics are changing. Urgent cares are coming up different ways that's the practical side that people can get their hands on but that's a reflection of all those things you just talked about right the business side of this is driving the patient care side of this that's just what people see what should they be looking at is it the rise of urgent care is it not just the bills that they get and they understand that just the practical access to care because they can see that they can see the hospitals changing they can see the urgent care is getting built right I, whenever it comes to like trying to give advice for people to kind of wade into American healthcare, I think it's a hard it's a hard sell right now to try to get people to think about the actual care they're consuming as terms of quality, right? Like, what what's the difference between two MRIs? What's the difference between one uh, the urgent care doing stitches and the hospital doing stitches? Probably not much, but people sometimes get really hesitant because I think we've been alienated for so long from having a reference on quality or cost or the business of healthcare in America. And so I think a lot of folks are just really squeamish, but trying to get back to your kind of like question here, like what would I recommend people to kind of parse out? Realize that like payment here, like it doesn't always equal access, right? Cause we have that physical problem, right? We have, so we have shortages out there with primary care stuff in the rural settings. We have specialty care in some metropolitan areas. It's uh, it, it looks different. That to me, like we have the physical access problems, but we also have another financial access problem, right? And if people want to be able to better navigate the American healthcare system, would really recommend like trying to understand. Like I'm talking again, it's so bad. Like people have been so alienated, uh, just having someone else pick uh, their health insurance for them. But I think I think it was like I saw a crazy poll that less than four uh, percent Americans know what a premium is, a deductible is co-insurance and out-of-pocket maximum, like the four basic health insurance nouns. And uh, because of that, I just think that uh, when we, like when, when people don't know how to use networks, people don't know how to see if one like health, like hospital systems connected to their health insurance, if they're going to get covered, they don't know who's out of network. They don't even know all the different like low cost options out there because they're always getting phoned to where their insurance company tells them to go through the coverage, right? And so I think what like no matter how you kind of approach the like the air quote healthcare market, you're going to be kind of confused as a patient, really. Yeah, Tanner Aleph joining us. All right, your undergrad was in cognitive neuroscience, so explain the cognitive dissonance here. We have this whole <laughs> issue of medical care is essential to keep you from dying. It's a life or death issue. It really is. It's not hyperbole to say it's a life or death issue. 
So, of course, people go, well, it's life and death. It should be free. Well, there's no such thing as free. It's got to be paid for by somebody. And people that do that really well want to be paid for the services of it. This is the disconnect, right? They Just on the basic human level, it's like, okay, this is all life and death stuff, but it's also big business. Plus, you have government regulation because you got to because it's life and death. Boy, this is just a big circle to square. And that's really at the heart of all these issues. Just trying to get our minds around that one little bit of it. No, I definitely say that uh, healthcare demand is definitely not elastic. There'll always be a presence for it. Like, I mean, it's just as insatiable as your need for water, right? At one point in your life, you're probably going to need to consume healthcare services. But the one thing that I get a little frustrated about is when I actually talk to people about like, why do you have like health insurance per se, right? I always hear like this over kind of buying of coverage. Like, I think I've talked about like 28 just anecdotally friends and they're like, oh yeah, I'm paying around like four thousand six thousand dollars healthcare premiums i'm like how how many times did you go to the doctor last year they're like twice i'm like for what physicals i'm like okay um you know like is that six thousand dollars actually worth the visit and i don't think a lot of people would try to understand that since you're not the primary payer of your own health care right you are deferring for someone else to make deals for you and that those entities like the insurance company is supposed to making deals for you and being the actual customer of healthcare is not trying to lower costs for you and I don't think that we've had a great conversation with Americans in our own, like in our own, like closed doors, like what's my real concern or risk. And depending on when I come to that answer, who do I partner up with to get the best like deals and health outcomes, right? If you got a chronic issue and you um, get, consume a lot of healthcare, if you have some other like acute accident stuff, or you know that you might be at risk of it, you have a really hectic job, it makes a lot of sense to have some of the higher premium dollar coverage from like a PPO plan that can just cover you traditionally with a wide network. But um, when it comes to, if you're just like, you know, I'm pretty healthy, I exercise in my broccoli and I only go to the doctor twice a year, I'm like, maybe you should go on HSA. Maybe you don't need to lose all your dollars in premiums and can take your uh, Timmy to get braces and your wife out to Fiji, right? Like, um, I, I just like, like I, th I think like a good thing here that we could really just tell people is like, ask yourself like, where am I at realistically with my health? What can I control? What can I improve? When then admit to yourself, where can I not control? Where can I not improve? And when for those areas that you can't control, like look at the different forms of health insurance out there, the alternatives, like the there's like crowdsourcing now, there's direct primary care. But if you need something that's like an actual hospital system or an ASC, like just make sure that's actually in your network, right? And like just kind of do a little bit of due diligence. And I think you'd see kind of people being able to dodge some of those crazy astronomical medical bills we hear about for simple stuff. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Tanner Ayla joining us. 
this is more of the same problem though. Those are all, everything you just said was great. That's for the folks that have options. There's always this cohort of folks that are not going to have options either because of their situation or poverty or whatever. They don't have options. Mm -hmm. Somehow people buzzword this into healthcare being one size fits all. Healthcare is never going to be one size fits all because you're going to have haves and have nots. You got people that can pay, people that can't pay. And then you got this big middle of folks that can pay a certain amount, but not too much. So how much care do they get? That's another core thing that we don't talk about enough. Like you were saying, in our conversations like, look, somewhere in here, we have to be able to take care of everybody, but everybody has different needs and different abilities. How do we square that circle? That's a good question. I've been really thinking about this because like, I think uh, you probably been following the news, right? Like Medicaid, the government health insurance that's partnered with your states, run by your state, uh, that usually covers pe- like low-income individuals, typically the group that would struggle financially to be able to access care or get care. Um, we've seen enrollment just skyrocket after the pandemic and we saw like the turbulence with unemployment. But uh, we can offload people and try to bolster those programs up. I think a lot of legislators are talking about that. I, I heard a joke not too long ago that some folks here in Texas were trying to look at Medicaid to cover nutritional plans and get if people eat broccoli and uh, just like stuff like that. Even though we have SNAP and other benefits, when it comes to trying to construct something that might be able to help. One thing I've been really visiting, particularly like to address all those people that maybe not have the means or they're in a really like kind of like no access point is we can talk about like uh, tra- like uh, transportation and getting some like mobile wheels out there and getting the brain like the care to the people. But you know, that's a different problem. I think we can focus on the money here a little bit and just uh, talk about, for example, that most hospitals in America are actually nonprofits, right? Like disproportionately, like it's like a little like sh- sh- north of like sixty-seven percent, meaning that all of them to be nonprofits have to produce a financial assistance policy, and in those financial assistance policies, they usually set pretty high, like around like somewhere like above Medicaid expansion rate or like one hundred thirty-eight plus or one hundred fifty percent the federal poverty rate, which means a lot of Americans through the hospitals without insurance should be getting financial assistance. Where I'm talking like completely free uncompensated care or they get a heavy discount that actually makes healthcare somewhat in the ballpark of doable even for people less than two thousand dollars in savings so like i I, like the the problem that we like we haven't seen the uptake of this right from those from those hospitals even though you hear about all like you know providence health donates this or does this is that uh i think it's like the evidence only come out recently about like last three years that most of these uh groups uh when you look at their tax exemptions that's why they've become nonprofits, right um, I think they give out less than, I think the average is one in three hospitals gives out less than 1.4% of their operating revenue or expenses, meaning that uh, for the layman, hospitals are getting multi-million dollar tax breaks because they're expected to use those savings to take care of like folks that have trouble accessing care and they're not doing it, right? And, and again, like this is like this isn't like your local rural nonprofit hospital, critical access hospital. We're talking the upper quartile people, which should be able to like have their tendrils because they have such a huge system out there, providing tons of free care that could aid some of the government programs out there, but they're not holding up their their side of it. And I think that's like a complete loss. And like those folks that you're talking about in those unique circumstances, not getting access aren't reaching them. Yeah, Tanner Aleph joining us. This is part of something that's kind of new to the healthcare debate. A lot of this stuff is things that people have been debating since the dawn of time. You know, how does healthy people take care of the unhealthy people? That's that's the long and the short of it, right? That's ever since there's been more than three or four people, there's been that conversation. There is part of this that's new now. 
we have new things through both technology and just changing society and culture. We have things like charity care. We have things like crowdfunding. We have things like telehealth. There is new parts to this healthcare debate. Are we doing a good job of pushing the ball forward of talking about the new things that could act like stuff like telehealth? No, it doesn't solve every problem, but it solves some problems. Things like crowdfunding. No, that's not scalable to everybody. But yes, you got to figure that in because when you just look at the dollar amounts, it's pretty substantial. The charity stuff you just said with the hospitals, the percentages, those sorts of things. It seems like we spend a lot of time in the roads talking about the same old debates without pushing the ball forward and like, okay, how do we start implementing some of this new stuff into the old arguments so that we actually get, even if it's an incremental progress, at least we're inching forward. I think we're missing the mark a lot. Um, I think that uh, when it comes to our established parties, Democrat, Republican, we're still kind of bent up on this whole idea of like trying to develop like a single pansia, that one magic bullet to the holy grail play, right? That's going to be some new type of system that's going to fix the flaws with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Republicans have very different visions. Uh, Democrats and other liberal and progressive minds really want single payer, which is a completely different vision, right? And I, I, to me, it's like, uh, I don't think people realize sometimes how powerful the insurance and hospital lobbies are at the federal level. And even though like people, I mean, the single, single pair might seem really catchy as a term, but I don't know if it has the legs. I also don't think it's okay, you know, cause I think uh, back when the Affordable Care Act was established and Republicans took some, took a good amount of flack for uh, just saying, oh yeah, insurance companies should allow, like, should, should, uh, should be allowed not to take up that person with cancer. And I think everyone disagreed with that and they lost on that issue very much, very much so. But what I'm trying to get to right now is saying that there are these things that are able to make the current status quo better, like living in an Obamacare era world where we can employ telehealth and crowdfunding and we can use price transparency and we can use charity care. The thing that's happening though is that we just went through like the last 30 or 40 years of people being alienated on the consumption of healthcare, understanding a cost of healthcare, knowing how to pay for healthcare, right? And we're expecting all these consumer, all these patients, all these people with real problems and like really high demand just to get thrown into markets, to get like overloaded and fire, like fire hose with a bunch of like information and plan deductible types of stuff, trying to navigate like uh, a hospital's mental health system. Like you just, we like gave no one any legs here. And even though there's technically information's increasing and new tech and new abilities and new infrastructure is being built, to help people get to a lower price and get at the quality they need, it's still not, there's no incentive for us to be present, right? There's no incentive for me to actually try to spend the extra two hours to look over my, like my employer's health insurance plan or to really be like, do I need Medicaid or to try to like look at a few different doctors in my area to see who can give me my best surgery, right? With, for, for a particular issue. We don't have a time for that. And it's, I think that people see as such a burden is because it's new. And I think that there's policy out there, that's why I'm working at the Cicero Institute, that is trying to create those incentives for the first time.
Tanner Aleph joining us. Let's be real about this stuff, though. A lot of this is going to go through Congress and the government, either regulatory wise or a bill wise or policy wise. You, you've been in that position. You've done some congressional work for folks before. Just briefly take folks behind the scenes, though, because we talk about this. You know, you're you're at Cicero. So you talk about it that way. I talk about it in a, kind of a populist way on, you know, media things. When it gets to the nitty gritty of actually making legislation, this is really a heavy ball going up a very steep hill because this is all got to get in black and white. It's not just buzzwords. You've been behind that curtain, though. Just explain to folks how big a lift that is and the challenge that is involved there. Yeah. So I've worked on Capitol Hill for it was about a little over just like just shy of two years. And I remember when I first showed up, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. We're going to get so much stuff done. It's going to be a big boon in my career. I'm so happy. I'm so cool. wearing my little suits in my little office here in Rayburn. Um, got to tell you, you got maybe like two months in and realized that, uh, yeah, there's never a moment where your member or your boss just comes up to you and they're like, hey, Tanner, like, what's your new idea to fix like the entire American healthcare system, right? That, that the people, like I love constituents too, man. Cause I used to, like, uh, when I was, when I first started out before I kind of got layer up the food chain there, was taking those calls and it just broke my heart because so many people would call in the office and they would just try to pitch these ideas as if like lobbyists don't exist, as if like think tanks like me and other groups aren't trying to pitch all these uh, overwhelmed, like, uh, like Congress pe- folks, staff, with ideas, right? And it's just never an idea is true. It's not typical. I wouldn't say never, right? It's not good to have an absolute. There's never, it's, it's unusual to see a member of Congress just produce a completely innovative idea of their own accord. They're usually getting outside help. And the thing is, when it comes to looking for the outside help, right? They have campaigns, especially if you're in the House, you're beholden to <laughs> a constituency, but you're more beholden to the election, like the electoral process, right? And a lot of the advertisement in your success is like is is dependent on your endorsement of the private sector, of certain key figures of the community, right? And say you got a hospital, say you got insurance companies in your district, and you try you get elected the first round, but then you try to create all these like new regulations, transparency clauses, uh, you want to create price ceilings on them. Like that stuff's not going to stick is because the hospital like lobby is going to walk into that congressperson's office and be like, hey, heard you want to cap knee replacements for the elderly. Uh, and then the, the congressperson would be like, yeah, I do want to do that. And the lobbyists would probably be like, that. Ah, well, I hate to get, see you get primaried, <laughs> you know, like to see you get challenged and like exed out. People, I just don't think understand like the power or like the the scope, right? I think it was like, hospitals alone like some hospital associations were forking out like over they were the third most highest paying lobbying group of like 1.4 billion dollars at the at the federal level alone right that's not including the states so i just like wanted to point the illusion that like just saying that you have a solution to healthcare, or we we know that some people are doing bad things and trying to slap down on those people it's probably not going to go through because like the people in healthcare are giving out the most dollars to members of congress and a member of Congress is not going to burn that political capital unless they absolutely have to, or it's existential because their constituency is completely like kind of reordered against them. But for a lot of this too, is like hospitals, man, like they have a great reputation. They look 
people love them in the community. They're sometimes the biggest employers. They do a lot of great stuff. They do little side stuff. They, you know, they bring in like birthday equipment for child cancer. Like they have like that image, that rhetoric of looking like a really good group, even though they're like a good, like the upper quartile revenue generating hospitals are just completely robbing America for the most part. Like, I wish I could like spell it out that there's a solution for that. And I would say that I've seen more success at the state level, right? Because the nice thing about the federal level is even though that my boss never came up to me and asked me for a novel idea, he did ask, what did Texas do? What did Virginia do? What did Tennessee do? A lot of times members of Congress, Senate or House will look to the states to like, because like the states are the true policy laboratories of America and they're able to just try things out. They have smaller jurisdictions, so smaller sample populations, right? They, they're able to create policy that addresses their unique needs. And I think that a lot of times like uh, the, the federal folks want to see the precedent. And if it works well, they'll take that idea and they'll try to work with it. But I sometimes just going for Congress straight gut, like just like go for right for the throat or the artery, not going to really work here. I really think that the healthcare should be more of a federalistic or state by state basis where we can get consensus or at least, you know, there could be little custom tailor ads to certain reforms, for example, like the patient's right to save reform working at CISRO. But as long as like 10 states, 15 states pass it and it becomes like a force that's working, it can show that's doing good and the market's affecting, that's when we can have a greater conversation about like, kind of teeing up to send to a member of Congress to take seriously and look past the lobbying and being able to get behind something where they won't lose political capital. <laughs> yeah. Tanner, Ailiff, join us. You touched on something important. I don't want to skirt by though. When we're talking about these hospital systems though, we need to understand there's different kinds of hospital systems Yes, because certain States, if the main hospital system is based off your public university, you know, which a lot of those are, they're, they're the teaching hospital and that's their, you know, my home state, WVU medicine, they've started taking over a lot of the regional smaller hospitals. Those people take calls from state officials. Trust me, they will because yeah. they have to. So you actually, even though it's a big conglomerate because it's a state entity and a state school, that big hospital system. Yeah. They will listen to the state government and this. So it sounds almost backwards that you might have a little more control that way, but you really would. Now there's corporate ways, there's privatized systems, of course, but that's a good lesson for folks to understand. It's like the hospital systems are not monolith. You need to understand which ones you're dealing with because that'll also tell you how to access and approach them if you want to try to get something changed. Yeah, no, hospital, complete umbrella word. There is nuances to all of that. The university teaching, critical access, children's uh, for-profit versus private equity owned. Like it's it just there there's like this is such a manifold different lying of them and i think that you, i think you're right is that uh, andrew is that like each one one of them carries a different amount of influence and there's a different lever to work with them on the state or federal level but yeah i don't know like i want to be i want to be bullish like you and i want to say that like you know because we had like you know we're here in austin texas right and we have ut it's not like many members of the Texas legislature can just go up to UT, go up to UT and be like, "You're going to be honest to charity care now," like, you know that, and that's going to fly. <laughs> so sometimes it really depends on your locality. But you're right; I think people should try it out. Should talk with their members. They can try to see, like, what is like the actual hiccup for some of these pricing things or charity care or costs, right? Like, <laughs> or see if their member can even tell them what cost is. <laughs> but. I mean, yeah, it's a little pie in the sky, but, you, you know, a state, some kind of state official is going to get a quicker phone call with a public university system than, you know, some rando from Bakersfield is going to get Kaiser Permanente on the phone. So, 
you know. No, I agree with that. Definitely. You know, it's all matter of saying find out what your healthcare system's at. You know, you should follow it like your politics. Find out where the money goes, find out who's in charge, know what you're dealing with, folks. That's the important thing here. Tanner Alip, we're gonna keep having you on and some other folks from Cicero because this is one of those topics that we're always going to have to talk about, right? Because we're all gonna need healthcare at some point and we're all gonna pay for everybody else's health care all the rest of the time, right? So we'll keep talking about this. Let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, a little bit about Cicero and where they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Yeah, of course. So you can follow me. I always, all my material gets published on the Cicero website. So that's www.ciceroinstitute. Cicero being like the philosophers. So C-I-C-E-R-O institute.org. There's just an about, there's a team page. You'll see my name with my funny little headshot smiling everybody. <laughs> And then uh, I'd say I, I, I like LinkedIn, so follow me on LinkedIn. You can just type it, literally Google Tanner Aleph LinkedIn. You'll pop up, my see my profile. I put up a lot of work there, a lot of videos, a lot of great stuff. And then, of course, the classic policy death hole Twitter is at TALF5. That's my handle, at T-A-L-I-F-F-5. Tanner, I love this conversation. Enjoyed it. Glad to finally get you in, even though it took us a lot of scheduling juggling, both my fault and yours. Not, not just, you know, we'll share. It is shared. It is shared. It is shared. shared. You Austin people just work on a whole different calendar than the rest of America. Let's just be honest about it. Uh, Tanner, I love to having you, buddy. We'll do it again soon. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
Uh, welcome back to Hard Tell. Okay, let's go back overseas. We're going to talk a little Greek politics, and it's all Greek to me, so we're going to get somebody that actually knows about this stuff. I know it's a cheap joke, but it works every time. Uh, Alex Petropoulos, another one of our great Young Voices contributors, new face to the program. Hopefully, it's not the last time we see him. How are you, sir? Great to see you. Thank you for the time. I'm doing very, very well. Thank you for having me on. All right, let's explain to everybody the UK accent, because I introduced you as Greek. You're Greek, but you lived and did university and stuff in the UK. This is not all that uncommon. Just real quick, let folks know about you and how you came to love Greek and explain it to people like me. Yeah, so, you know, I've got a Greek dad and I've got a very multinational mum, born in the UK, but I've grown up in Greece. So if I'm in one country, I'll call the other my home. And that's usually how it goes. Yeah, that's how it goes. All right, you opened your piece with it. I think it's a good way to open this conversation for folks that aren't super familiar with Greece and all. Look, you can only learn so much of the ins and outs of a political system and a country's politics from afar. Greece is a little different because, you know, we do call it the birthplace of democracy for a reason. Most of the Western tradition of culture comes out of Greece. We've all heard it in school. We've heard it over and over again. Draw me a quick line, though. Ancient Greek to where we are now. I know that's a lot of human history, but what people hear historically and what we're dealing with today, there's threads there, but they're not one and the same. And this is a unique thing for the Greek people right now, right? Yeah. So, I mean, Greece is always sort of coupled with this question of what should its democracy look like? And it's always trying to find the balance between representative democracy and proportional representation and a strong government power when you want, when you've finally decide to elect a government, you want them to have a strong mandate and to be able to actually enact their vision. And so this is a, a debate that's always going throughout Greek politics and Greek culture. Um, the problem is that recently, the Greek government has sort of tried to push too far on one end of this debate and tried to swing the balance in its favor in a way that is, is not quite illegal, but is dodgy to say the least. Yeah, and to be fair here and not disrespectful to anybody here, dodgy politics is a feature, not a bug. You know, there's yeah. a lot of chaos. There's a lot of drama. Um, there's a lot that goes into Greek politics. Let's back up, though, because before we get into the current situation, the recent history is really important here. There's mm -hmm. been a lot of economic turmoil. We know about the bailouts and all that. There's been a lot of yeah. cultural turmoil. The cultural turmoil has boiled over into the political where you have you know, extremist groups that have tried to get power. Some of that's been abated. It's going to be an on-running problem like it is in most countries. Just give us a little bit of the background before we get into this current situation. There's been a lot going on yeah. in Greek policy the last 20 years or so. Greece has been through an adventure, to say the least. Um, so going back to 2010, we had, uh, off the back of the financial crisis, we had the Greek sovereign debt crisis and all the political crises that followed many, many elections. I, I remember when I was in school, it seemed like every weekend we had to stop school for Friday and Monday because there was going to be an election happening and they had to close school. Um, but throughout all this, you know, Greece has sort of gone through its long recession. It went through essentially a 10-year depression. And now it's coming out of that depression. And to be honest, most of the time you're going to hear stories about Greece, they're going to be really optimistic because, you know, The Economist, uh, rated Greece as its unexpected winner of 2022, right? Of all the OECD countries, they were like, Greece, the one that impressed us the most, on the rise. And so whilst as a whole, Greece is taking five steps forward, 
at the same time, it's important to not lose sight of the steps backwards that it still takes, because there are still problems in the country. Even though corruption is at its lowest level since pre-crisis, it still only has a corruption score of 50%, which puts it at about you know, top 60 in the world. Not too great for an OECD country. Yeah. Alex Petrogopoulos joining us. Um, these reforms that you're talking about in your piece, we're going to link to it. Young Voices Europe, uh, New European Bureau, we got a lot of good fresh faces in there. You talk about it in your piece, though. These reforms that we're dealing with today, this is actually stuff from about six, seven years ago, and it's just yeah. now taking effect. So one of our core principles in our program, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Take us back to that, the 2016 government what mm -hmm. happened there that it put in these new rules about supermajorities and how to change things? Yeah, so the Greek constitution was codified a while back and it said in that, you know, if you ever want to change something for the election system, that can only take place in two elections time, which seems like a quite decent rule. You stop governments coming in and suddenly rigging the system for their next election. So going back all the way to 2016, the left government, Syriza, came into power um, you know, dealing with all the bailout stuff. And they one of their popular policy mandates was to push through fully proportional representation. So if you get 5% of the vote, you get 5% of the seats in parliament. They passed that 20, 2016, all good. Three years later, 2019, the center-right new democracy government wins. And they're like, you know, we actually prefer the old system. We're moving it back to a system that benefits us, that distills and takes away minority representation and it pushes it to the larger parties like themselves and it props them up artificially. So that's the history. The 2016 changes are coming into play now, this election, 2023. Yeah. The issue is that they might not stay around for long. Right. Alex Papadopoulos joining us. Here's the thing with this is just to give the other side of the argument for you to explain to folks, they're pushing this as a form of strong and stable government. That's the quote from your piece. Yeah. They got a point. We opened up with it. There's been a lot of chaos. There's a lot mm -hmm. of turnover. There's been a lot of corruption, although that's better. The economic situation is better. So the argument for strong and stable has a strong argument. Of mm -hmm. course, we're both students of history. We understand strong and stable has also been the entry level card to all kinds of bad forms of government because they're like, oh, well, we can't change because then accountability goes out the window. How do you balance those two things, especially in a country that's kind of finding its political footing right now? Because you do need strong and stable, but you don't want that tipping over into where you have a permanent majority, which is the fear, right? Yeah. So to clear things up, like the principle of them deciding to change it back, if the people voted for them, that's completely fine. That's a natural and healthy functioning of us just having this balance and this swinging between strong and stable, fully proportional. The problem is the way in which they want to get about that. Because what they're doing is they're essentially saying, we're going to run this one election, probably going to be in April. No one's going to get a majority. And then we're going to immediately run a second one. And what that essentially does is it takes this rule in the constitution that says that your rules have to lag by one. They have to only apply in the second election to come. And it throws that out the window. It, it technically gets around it. You're just running a second election, but in, it really goes against the full spirit of the constitution. And you're really just slamming through your changes far quicker than they're supposed to. So, I mean, they, they have their um, reinforced proportionality. They have their stable government. 
for them, but it will come into play in the next election. And so the democratic thing to do is just wait for that election to come by. Yeah. Here's the thing, too. You talk about it. Look, governments are people. People have human nature. Human nature is undefeated. You talk about it in your piece. We're going to link to the piece. Make sure you read the whole thing. There's got to be strong incentives to get government to function properly. Mm -hmm. What are the incentives right now that are driving this? Not just the political of we want the old system. There's incentives, reasons why they want to move back and forth, right? What are the incentives right now that are pushing people to have this debate in the first place? Because it really gets to the core of why you want to change it. Because let's be honest, the next time the next group gets in power, they're going to have the same debate again, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that just means getting into the nitty gritty of what the system is. The debate is between fully proportional representation, so 5% of the vote, 5% of the seats, or a system where out of 300 seats, you get up to a bonus 50 seats that just props up the winning party, and it essentially moves the bar from needing 50% of the vote to win a majority government down to around 39% of the vote to win a majority government. And that, And so... What this means practically is it's a question of, do you want a coalition government? Do you want to have to share power? And do you want to have to essentially trade political favors in order to get anything done? Because in previous times, that has been, you know, you get into a coalition and the way you get that coalition, you say, I'm going to give you the Ministry of Defense and I'm going to give you the Ministry of Environment. And then you can end up with maybe some crazy far-right party being given the defense ministry to you know satisfy their ultra-nationalistic egos or whatever and that can have some dangerous consequences so there are arguments to be heard on both sides right joining us here we go back to this almost turns into a circle when you're discussing but look these problems are not unique to the greeks this is something that every government that has representation deals with how do you deal with that that give and take you're just talking about horse trading we talk talk you know just the give and take of politics like i'm going to give you this you're going to give me this we're going to compromise and we'll get this policy in Mm -hmm. you have to have that to make things work but at the same time and you touch in it on your piece that also gives the sitting politicians and the current leadership a very now driven focus because it really makes them focus on the now. Good government mm-hmm. has to focus past the now. How do you get past this next election? How do you get past the next four, six, eight years? If you're having this argument, those things start going by the board and the propensity is you're going to wind up with the same problem all over again, right? That's the concern. Yeah. And and I think you're really right about that long term because Let's say you're someone who really believes in this system of strong government. The next election will, sorry, not the next, the one after next election will have that system. It's already in the law. It will just take two elections time. So realistically, you could be in a position like I am, to be honest, where I think, you know, next four years, maybe I'm okay with that strong, stable government to get us, you know, really accelerate us out of the crisis and sort of grow the economy really strongly. But after that, I want proportional representation. I want them to be held accountable. And so 
if we want to really argue for that balance, we have to sort of say, okay, this election will have this system. Next election, we've got to swap. So let's vote for one party this election, have them change the election system, and then just have a new election again, right? Yeah, Alex Petrovel is joining us. That's the political side. That's the legislative side, the parliamentarian side. What's the appetite of the people right now? Because even though this is a parliamentarian government, so it's a little one step isolated from like what we do in America, where we throw out our Congress every two years for elections. What's the appetite of the people with this? Is there a little bit of um, is there a little bit of weariness to the back and forth here? Is there a little whiplash from wanting to change the system back already? What's the appetite of the people right now? Because that's probably going to be the deciding factor in all this, right? Well, I mean, for one, people, it, it is it is quite a weird effect having the delayed onset of these changes, because this is the first time Greeks will have proportional representation since 1989. So for many Greeks, they don't know what that looks like. So I don't think they're necessarily burnt out and tired of all the changes. I think that the results of this first election and then running a second could undermine the will of the Greek people for having proportional representation because it sort of paints this picture of picture of you can never form majorities without this uh, strong and stable system. But at the same time, you've got to look at things through another lens, which is that the current government has been going through somewhat of a scandal and a crisis at the moment. It's sort of been dubbed by international media and local media as Greek Watergate, right? And there's this big scandal of the national um, intelligence agency in Greece has been spying, essentially, and setting up wiretaps on opposition uh, members of parliament and also prominent journalists. And so there's been a lot of, you know, tension within opposition parties. There have been a lot of accusations being thrown left and right. So the general air of the government isn't trying to mess us over and isn't trying to undermine democracy and democratic values, there's already a lot of uh, subtext and pre-existing tension there. Yeah. Let's touch on history there real quick. The subtext there is, if you go back into history far enough, you go back you know, to the late 60s, early 70s, the military ruling in Greece. For folks that aren't familiar that memory is fading, but that's still living memory, especially for probably a lot of the the ruling class, those folks in their mm-hmm. 60s and 70s that really have a lot of the power and the money in the country right now. That's a formative experience for them. Just real quick for folks that aren't familiar with it. There's a reason something like that, even though corruption's a little bit better, something like a wiretapping scandal. That's why that kind of gets people's feathers up. That That's just kind of an ingrained thing for that generation, right? Yeah, it, it sets off alarm bells. It, the, the parallels of scary obviously no one's suggesting that the government's trying to do something like what happened in the 70s with the military junta where the military essentially took control of the government and greece became a a military controlled state for about a decade and it was the trigger for all of the mess that happened in cyprus uh and it you know i don't have to really go on to tell to tell people why that'd be a bad thing but it's such a core um, it's such a core memory for so many Greek people. I mean, not for myself, because I only read about it in history books. And you know, every year when we com- commemorate the atrocities of that time, we talk about it. So I guess it's polarizing for students, and it's polarizing for that older class. But there's that middle gap that 
maybe doesn't quite remember it and doesn't quite take see it the same way. Yeah, it could be. Metropolis. Let's talk about the here and now real quick, though. That's internal Greek politics. There's a lot going on outside of Greece right now. There's the never-ending fussing with the Turks going on, which has flared mm-hmm. up recently. You mentioned Cyprus. Cyprus is still a problem. Uh, of course, the economic situation. Um, the, Greece, like everybody else, is keeping an eye on Ukraine and Russia. That's a complicated relationship with the Greek government. Mm-hmm. What's the external stuff going on outside of this that both the Greek government and the Greek people are kind of keeping an eye on? And is that going to be unifying things or is that going to be divisive things as this government's trying to kind of find its footing for what they're going to do electoral-wise? Yes. I mean, that's why I actually, I just finished writing up a, an op-ed on this, um, in fact. But I, it was going to go up, but it's been paused because of the um, the earthquake in Turkey. And, you know, that may end up, reshifting how everyone thinks about this because in the lead up in the run-up to the Turkish and the Greek elections there's been really an elevation of tensions but since the earthquake happened in Turkey that killed many people the first people to call and respond and say we're here to help we're here to we're we're sending first responders we're sending um, helicopters filled with medics and firefighters was Greece right and so maybe this event will actually go to sort of soften tensions and ameliorate some of the concerns. That being said, maybe within a month, things will be back to how they were. And then if we talk about how things were and how things will be probably in a month, we're really looking at a Greece that is aiming to redefine its geostrategic location within the world. And it's sort of aiming to fill a Turkey-sized hole in NATO, right? In the sense that Greece is becoming incre- increasingly important for NATO in sending troops up through Bulgaria and Romania into NATO. It's becoming increasingly important to sort of act as an airbase for sort of NATO projecting its power into the Middle East. So if you look at a lot of things that the government has been doing, the Greek military budget was 2.8% of GDP in 2020. In 2021, that went up to 3.9% of GDP then down to 3.75. So there's been a massive, massive spending on military. So clearly the current government sort of sees itself as filling this hole within NATO in the southeast and within the southeast of the Med and sort of aiming to sort of be the anchor state within the Mediterranean for NATO. And so obviously it, would ha- it has to win its next election to do that. And that maybe would sort of play into why it would want this stability to be able to sort of how can it call and claim to be providing stability for the south of europe if it can't provide stability within its own form of government yeah good points uh, alex Pedrop, excuse me alex petropol <laughs> see i got all the way through it now i can't say it alex petropolis uh joining us one last question kind of put a bow on this and you you almost did it right there just in explaining that the greek 
relationship with Europe has always been complicated. It's ingrained. It's not going away. You know, the the friendship, we'll put it politely with Turkey, that's not going to change anytime soon, especially with the current leadership in that country. Mm-hmm. What's the immediate future for the next few years? Because it looks like, you know, economically, you just started out with it. You know, they the projections are the economy's improving, the corruption's down, even with this wiretap scandal, but corruption's down, so that's kind of made it a big deal. That's kind of a self-fulfilling mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. You What's know. the future of Greece the next few years? Not just the NATO stuff, but just kind of coming out of this real turbulent area. Do you think they continue to ascend or is this going to be a plateau or is this a peak? Where do you think we are here for the next few years? Yeah, I think I think the phrase that sums it up really great is five, five steps forward, one step backwards. And, you know, even if you look back into 2019, that's when we started coming out of the crisis and then COVID hit. So it's sort of been a COVID ended up prolonging the crisis and prolonging the economic depression longer than it should have been. But the country is rearing to recover and is rearing to keep growing. And I think that I think Greece is definitely going to be on the rise. I think that it will possibly need to diversify its portfolio in order to actually continue that growth and make it sustained. But I think that it has a lot of allies. You know, there are a lot of people within Europe who sort of look at Greece and still hold this impression of broke country, can't handle its finances. I mean, as a Greek-British person, I think I'm allowed to say that I think that the roles have now been reversed and the UK now holds that that crown. Um, but, and so, you know, take it like this, when I'm thinking about where I'd like to work over the next five, 10 years, I'm leaning more Greece than the UK. So that sort of can give you my impression of the upward trajectory that it sort of has on its path. Yeah. And no offense to the British beaches, but much better beaches in Greece. So <laughs> a little, little better there. Alex Papropoulos, thank you so much for the time today. Till we get you back on her tell though, let folks know how they get, can keep up with you, how they can follow you. We're going to link to your piece and all your social media. Let folks know how they can keep up with you till we get you back on her tell again. Yep. So I write for the Young Voices Europe blog, but I'm also a Young Voices UK contributor. So you can find me on Twitter um at alex t pet and i'm writing for all sorts of publications got published in city am today so if you just follow me on twitter you can find all my good and bad takes yep his profile's up on the youngvoices.org page we'll link to that we'll definitely have you back important part of the world we got to keep an eye on a lot going on there especially erdogan acting funny greece is going to be our natural ally there thank you so much alex petropolis thank you for your time sir thank you very much Yes, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.